Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. That is available as a paperback, an audiobook, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, start with Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Make room for the two sequels. Under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers, and you can find out more about all of that as well as interviews with thousands of publishing professionals, authors, editors, literary agents, all the best people at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, and that's plenty of intro. My God, let's get started. We've got Allie Standish here. Uh, Allie, how are you this evening? I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there. How about you? I am excellent. Now that I'm uh, chatting with you, I'm having a fresh cup of coffee. Now that uh, my child's in bed, I know your child's in bed. So we are parents who are free to have an adult conversation. <laughs> <laughs> we don't say the S word in our house because as soon as we say, he wakes up. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. I uh, never uh, summarize other people's biographies or other people's books, uh, so I won't do either to you tonight. That's my promise. So my first question is always, would you give esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background? Yeah, so um, I live in North Carolina now. I grew up in North Carolina. I never thought that I would come back to North Carolina to live, and here I am, and I love it. Um, let's see, I've been writing for my whole life. Uh, my first book was published in, oh my gosh, 2017 now, I want to say. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, and it was called Ethan I Was Before, and I've been lucky enough to publish um, five more books since then. And the latest one is The Mending Summer, uh, which came out in May. So lots of uh, questions for you about one about how fast you're writing to get so many books out in such a, a short period of time, <laughs> uh, and and high quality books. I I very much enjoyed them in the summer, and I've, I've got all kinds of questions about that. Uh, but I had seen that your mother uh, was the first person to teach you about storytelling and writing. Uh, so I always like to start with where do writers form? I don't know if that's where this particular writer formed. Uh, or if it happened before that, when did you form? Yeah, so I mean, partially, I think it was just in my like DNA. Um, I remember like dictating stories to my mom before I could even like spell my name. Um, but she certainly nourished that in me and and made me see it as something that was really important, an important part of my identity. Um, so. Uh, she, we used to play this game, particularly when we would go visit my extended family. Um, and I was the youngest kid and I wasn't like the other kids in my family. Like they were all like really athletic and um, there's kind of like a sarcastic sense of humor in our family that like is fun now, but when I was like four, it, like wasn't so much. Um, so when we were at these gatherings and I was feeling like a little bit out of place, my mom would uh, take me out to this hammock in my grandparents' yard um, and we would lay there and she would ask me to tell her, give her any three things. So like people, places, toys, animals, plants, like just anything that I had in my, in my head at that moment. Um, and I would list three things off for her and she would take a minute and think about them and then she would 
come up with a story for them. Um, and that was really formative for me in understanding story structure and understanding that a story is never just about one thing. And the magic in stories is really about the connections that you find between the elements in your story. So um, it was really, yeah, it was a formative experience for me as a writer. So when's the first time you went from telling stories for fun to thinking, oh, maybe one day I will be a writer? So that would be sixth grade. And um, in sixth grade, I was obsessed with uh, the most handsome actor in Hollywood at the time, who, uh, depending on the age of those who are listening or watching us right now, may seem really old now. Uh, but it was Matt Damon, totally obsessed. Don't know why, because like all, all of his movies were pretty adult and I was only in sixth grade, but I'm totally obsessed. And I knew that he was a, uh, a screenwriter as well as an actor. Um, and so I came up with this idea for a book, which was about a girl who is an Olympian horse rider, uh, and she and her horse both get cancer at the same time, right before the Olympics, but are determined to go to the Olympics, despite the fact that they have cancer. Uh, it was very high drama, very high stakes. Um, and I wrote it off, and it was probably 100 pages. Uh, and I sent it to Matt Damon and I told him that like, this is my story. And like, I, I want you to make it into a movie. Um, never heard anything like not even like a form letter from his publicist to be like, thank you for reaching out, which in retrospect, I feel like is kind of cruel. Like I laid my heart bare for this man. Um, but that was like, a really cool thing anyway because as a sixth grader like writing something that's a hundred pages that's like intense and so that I think was the first time that I thought to myself like I can write a book and someday I'm going to do this for a living. Many a questions to, to ask following that. Uh, <laughs> one, what's your favorite Matt Damon role? Oh man. I mean, I know it's like a throwback, but Goodwill Hunting still gets me every time. It's that Southie accent. <laughs> this is I, I, this is a story I don't believe I, I've uh, told on the podcast because it's extremely embarrassing. Um, but I uh, had started off writing screenplays for films in, in college, and, and, and we would shoot some of them. Uh, and we were shooting a very serious, very serious, very important high-minded drama that I'd written. Yep. Oh, oh my gosh, would have won all the awards had we finished it. Anyway, as we're uh, filming a scene and the actors are performing it, they turn to me and they say, isn't this that scene from Goodwill Hunting? And I realized that even though I'd only seen the movie like I think once or twice, I was like, oh my gosh, I think I think it is not a, not word for word, but extremely close to, to stealing a scene from Goodwill Hunting. And I've always been suspicious of myself ever since because it had not been intentional. It's been, you know, it was a really well-written scene yeah. uh, that I found a, a place for. Yeah, so that's like one of my greatest fears as a writer is that like unintentional plagiarism. Um, and I also have a story in that vein, which was that with um, the Ethan I was before, uh, in the first chapter, there's a line, uh, or there was a line, where Ethan, the main character, says, uh, you can tell a lot about a person by their shoes. And uh, that was a line that was in there, like, in the arc, so in the very, like, penultimate version of the book. 
And my husband, Aki, was reading it and he said, you know, you stole this line. And I was like, from where? And he said, from Forrest Gump. You stole it from Forrest Gump. Like, you can tell a lot about a person by their shoes. These were my magic shoes. Mama said they would take me anywhere. And I was like, oh, man, like word for word from Forrest Gump. So I'm eternally grateful to him because I took it out of the book at the last second. But I'm sure a lot of other readers would have recognized that and would have just thought the the gall, the gall of this woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad it was cut and you didn't. Yeah. I, and then never heard from Matt Damon, but you might have gotten a letter from the Tom Hanks estate. Who knows? <laughs> I know, I know. And gosh, like no one wants to piss off Tom Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> God, no, he's an American hero. Why would you do that? <laughs> so, okay, so 100 pages about the girl and her horse. And that will get you, even though you never hear back from Matt Damon, that lets you know that hey, there's something here. You're definitely going to be a writer. Were you a big reader as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, reading was my safe place, as I, I suspect it was for many middle grade writers. Um, uh, it was like a sacred space for me. Um, it was just, yeah, it was everything. I could disappear into a book in a way that, at that time of my life, in a way that even now, I, as an adult, I find hard to do. Um, whereas at that age, it was so immersive and so real for me. Um, and I'm sorry, it just started pouring. So I don't know if you can hear the rain pouring on my roof. But um, but yeah, I read I read all the time. I'm you sure said, you did as well. I'm sorry? I said, I'm sure you did as well. Uh, most of the time, uh, when I wasn't rotting my brain with video games. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then from there, you eventually you go on to become an educator. Were you thinking that you were going to be a teacher and that was the main goal? Or was it always, I'm going to be a writer and until then I'll teach until I win all the awards and make all the money and Matt Damon stars in, in my novel? Right. Well, I mean, that is the natural trajectory for all middle grade authors. Um, uh, as you can see from my mansion, um, <laughs> it's a hard question because as a teacher, I don't know. Have you ever have you ever been an educator? A uh, substitute teacher and teaching some writing classes, but never. Okay. okay. Time. So, I mean, I think you'll probably still feel some of this. Like, it's a job where you have to be so in the moment, and so like your goals are not focused on you; they're focused on like your students and meeting their needs and like trying to figure out what your goals are for them. Um, that when I was in the classroom, I would say that writing did take a back seat and I wasn't, I just, I didn't have the energy to like think so long-term about what I was going to do. I think in the back of my head, like I, I always had that dream of being a writer, but there was not like a, like a five-year plan and a 10-year plan. Um, the reason actually that I left teaching was that my uh, husband, who's from Finland, um, he was in the U.S. on a green card visa, and his green card was about to expire. And so we had the choice between getting green card married, which I was not ready to do, um, or uh, moving to the U.K., where he had gotten a job offer and I could get a visa as an unmarried partner. 
Um, and so that's what we did. So we moved to the UK and when we got there, I didn't know a soul. I had like no social life. I had no job, no way to get a job. Um, but I had an idea for a book and I started to write it. And that was the moment where I, I truly seriously thought like, let me give this a shot and see if I can make this a career because what, I don't have anything to lose, you know, I'm not doing anything else. So had you not uh, been doing any writing between uh, Girl and Her Horse and, and this story that you're writing was just outside Cambridge or? Yes, that's right. Yep. Um, no, I, I wrote through the whole time, but I didn't. Uh, and I got my MFA in the summers when uh, when I wasn't teaching. Um, but it was it was the background thing um, and it was a passion thing and um, nothing that I wrote before Ethan uh, was anything that I sent out to agents or tried to query or anything like that. Um, so Ethan was like the, the next step in that journey for me of thinking like, maybe I'm at the level where someone might actually want to publish this. So I know somewhere in there you got, you got your MFA. So that's, that's from Holland University. That's before you start Ethan. And then you get a master's of philosophy from the University of Cambridge. Is that after Ethan or during? That was after, and I should clarify that um, the MPhil is just like what they call, like over here, it would be a Master of Arts. So I didn't actually get a degree in philosophy. The degree was in children's literature, um, but the name of the degree is a, an MPhil, Masters of Philosophy. So how did those uh, two programs differ and how did they prepare you for writing? Yeah, um, I mean, MFA programs are interesting. They're definitely not for everybody. Um, I think that they are the type of degree where you really get out what you put in. Um, and I put in a lot to my MFA and to learning as much as I possibly could, um, which was a lot. You know, when I, um, when I started the MFA program, I had never really thought critically very much about children's literature. I'd taken one class as an undergrad, but I had never really had the opportunity to think about children's literature as like a, a subject that I could, you know, read critically. Um, and that taught me a lot about craft in turn. Um, so that degree was kind of like half focused on the craft and half focused on, um, on the critical reading. Um, I met a lot of really wonderful people. Um, I learned a lot about the industry, which I had known nothing about. Um, and had some mentors who were incredible and who opened doors for me and um, and who I'm still really close to today. Um, the MA or the MPhil in Cambridge was just a critical degree. There was no creative element to that. And um, it was fascinating because children's literature critics are very critical of children's literature, like as a construct and um, and they're very suspicious of children's authors. Um, and there's kind of this sense that authors who choose children's literature are, are um, they're suspicious figures because you're pretending to be something that you're not, like it's the only genre that I can think of where the person who is writing it is by default 
not the person who is intended to read it. Um, so it's almost like colonial in that way. Um, so there is a good deal of suspicion of, about the motivations and the ideologies um, of children's authors. And, and so as someone who by that point was going to be a published author, it was really interesting to hear the academic perspective on the work that I was doing creatively. So I'm always curious with, with that, how do you um, allow that to benefit you and make sure that you're putting some best practices that you've learned, presumably from uh, from critically judging other writers' mistakes and saying, oh, well, don't, don't do that, um, without um, sort of um, uh, uh, freezing yourself with, you know, every, every step's a wrong step because now I know all the mistakes I could make. How do I possibly find a path forward? Also, I'm suspicious. I should clearly be writing about adults anyway, I guess. <laughs> so how, do you, how do you make that useful without letting it uh, freeze you? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I guess I took things with a grain of salt, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but it did, it certainly did. There were points in my, I think at that point, I was still doing like my last round of edits with the Ethan I was before. Um, and there were places where I would stop and think like, what is the implicit ideology of this particular passage? Um, you know, uh, so there there were places that I could hear those voices, but because I was able to kind of keep things in perspective and, and take them all with a grain of salt, um, it wasn't ever something that, you know, made me feel like, what am I doing? I'm a monster. <laughs> Um, so, okay, so thankfully you, you've already got a draft of Ethan and you're doing edits when they're uh, telling you of all the monstrous uh, ways that children's authors behave. <laughs> so you've already got a draft, you're good there. How long did that draft take you to, to compose? Uh, the first draft only took me six weeks, um, but it was because, like I said, I was in this like very magical little village. Um, uh, our house actually later on was used as like a, a set for a TV show called Grandchester, which was the name of the town we lived in, um, which is based on a series of books uh, about a detective or about a priest uh, who becomes a detective in the 1950s. So it's like very picturesque, like exactly what as an American you would envision like a quaint British village to be. Um, and so I was really like, like it was a very inspiring setting in which to be a writer. Um, uh, and there's a long history of writers who have written in Grandchester, um, but I had nothing else to kind of anchor myself to. And so I was very deliberate in making sure that like every day I wrote a certain amount of words um, to keep myself uh, accountable to that story and to make sure that I would actually finish it before I gave myself enough time that I would start to second guess it and, you know, wonder like, who was I to think that I could write this story and the story was stupid anyway. Um, so I wrote it in kind of a whirlwind, like sitting in this like teeny tiny office that we carved out of our little cottage, um, looking out the back window at our like ancient crumbling shed um, through a window that was like the original like 19th century glass panes and there were like holes like this big that we had to like 
poke plastic bags through to keep the spiders from coming in. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, it was like a really, it was really, really jealous of this incredible writing picturesque setting that you were you had in my mind until then. Oh, never mind. Well, I don't know if you know this about the UK doesn't have like any large like dangerous predators. I guess they have I guess they have badgers. Um but they have spiders, like enormous spiders that come into their homes. Um, in the same way that like in the South, we have cockroaches that come into our houses, but they're ginormous and they're just an accepted part of life there. Like they just call them house spiders. Um, and they're, they're monstrous. They look like something out of like the Amazon or something. So it, it was something to get used to, but a small price to pay to get to live where we did. House spiders. Nope. I'm out. Forget it. So, okay, so you get that done in, in, in six weeks, you keep the, the house spiders off your manuscript, you get it all composed. Then how long, how many revisions are you going through with this first novel? How long does it take you before, and then what's the path to publication? Yeah, um, I would say I probably went through eight or so drafts before I felt like it was ready to send out to agents. Um, you know, getting people from my MFA program to read it. Um, to give me feedback on it. it was super helpful. And then um, when I was ready to look for an agent, I wasn't sure because I was an American living in the UK and the UK has a completely different set of, of children's literature and you know any kind of literary agent. And so I wasn't sure like who I should be querying. Um, and I found this agency called Greenhouse um, that was transatlantic. So they had a they're based in London, but they had a, um, a U.S. office as well. And so I thought, like, that seems like a really good fit. So I sent them a query and um, Polly Nolan, who was the U.K. part of that agency, got back to me and she said, I really love this. Um, can you come in uh, to meet me so we can chat about it? And I was like, obviously, totally thrilled. Um, and at the same time, I had... Um, been invited to do an internship with a children's book packager uh, called Working Partners. Um, so packagers are like um, uh, people who come up with plots for books and um, send them off to find writers to write uh, the plots that we come up with. Um, and then we sell them to the publisher, but the author's name goes on it. So it's like a really collaborative process, um, more like a, a group of people writing a TV show than a traditional kind of solo author um, journey. Uh, and so I was starting this internship in London and I was really excited because it was my first like publishing gig. And uh, when Polly emailed me to ask me to come in for the interview, I noticed that her address was the same address as the uh, book packager. And I was so uh, like ignorant about anything to do with publishing that I, at that point I was like, oh, this is the publishing building in London. Like this is where all the children's publishing <laughs> takes place. So it makes total sense that they're in the same building. Um, and so I said like, oh, okay, well, this is great. Like I'm actually doing an internship in the same uh, area so I can come in, you know, on, on Wednesday or whatever. So we arranged the meeting, it was great. Um, and then I showed up for the first day of this internship 
and the elevator doors opened and it was like an open concept space um and there was like a little sign first thing when you stepped off the elevator uh, that said all the names of the companies that worked in that office and it turns out that working partners the book packager and greenhouse the literary agent uh, are um, are under the same umbrella company. Um, so they're part of the same company. And uh, as we like, as my intern manager comes to get me and we walk through the office, I'm starting to realize like, oh, like Polly and Sarah, who was the other agent, like they're, they could be here somewhere. And like, I'm just showing up in their space. And, um, and finally, Rosie, the internship coordinator, she was like, Let's see, where can we put you? Oh, Polly's desk is free today. <laughs> and I was just frozen in horror, but I didn't want to say I didn't I didn't I didn't know how to communicate to Rosie like what the situation was. And so I just like sank into this desk and I was like, she's going to come in. And she's going to find me like sitting in her desk and she's going to flip out because she's going to think that I have like stalked her here. And so the first thing I did at, at my publish at my very first publishing internship was write Polly and Sarah an email from Polly's computer to say, by the way, I'm at your desk right now. I'm so sorry. It's a monumental coincidence. I'm not stalking you. Please don't think I'm crazy and cancel our meeting on Wednesday. And they emailed right back and they were so lovely and great about it. And we all got a kick out of it. Um, but it was just one of those like kismet moments. Um, and I still work part time for working partners. And I signed with Polly and Sarah like almost immediately because I just knew that they were the right fit. But like, yeah, it was a moment. <laughs> That sounds incredibly convenient, and I should shamelessly plug that Sarah Davies uh, has a seven-question interview available at middlegradeninja.com, esteemed audience, as soon as you're through listening to our conversation and all the brilliant things we're going to continue to say. By God, head over there, check out that interview. It'll, it'll tell you everything you need to know. So while you're working uh, for the book package, or are you able to stop by? I mean, their desk are right there. Sometimes you're sitting at them. Are you able to, to see them sending off your, your, your book to publishers? and get a daily daily debrief before you leave every day or <laughs> do you never make eye contact in the hopes that it won't be weird how do you manage that yeah like we we went into a conference room and they offered me representation and like i had been counseled beforehand like don't accept an offer on the spot because you need to go and think about it and there were a couple of other agents that i was still um talking with and so they made the offer and I said, thank you very much. Can I think about it? And they said, yes. And then we all walked back into the same office and I sat down at the computer across from Sarah and pretended to work until my lunch break. And then I went downstairs and got on the phone to my husband and like screamed like they offered me representation. Um, so that was probably the funniest moment that we had. But um, but no, it was, it, uh, it was great, obviously. Um, I'm not in London anymore, but for the time that I was there, like it was really cool to be able to see them um, when they came into the office because it it felt like we were colleagues um, and like I got to know them on a different level than you do just sending emails back and forth about manuscripts and whatnot. So um, yeah, I'm I'm really grateful for that connection and as you said, like quite convenient. 
of course, they're still representing you now that you're back here in the States. Yes, Polly has left the agency to do her own thing, but Sarah is still my beloved agent. Um, and the other great thing about it is that she can never ghost me because we're on the same email listservs at work. So it's all good. <laughs> Not that she ever would. She's lovely and you should definitely read her interview because she's very wise. So um, what happens next then? They're able to get the, the book sold and then you immediately start writing the other five. How does your life change? Um, they, yes, so they managed to sell Ethan in a two book deal. We had quite a few offers. Um, and uh, I remember the moment that we got the final offer from uh, Allison Day, who was my editor at HarperCollins, um, Sarah, called me during intermission of uh, the play Rebecca, which I'd taken my parents to see while they were in town visiting me. Um, and she knew that I was gonna be at this play and she called me specifically when she figured an intermission might be to tell me what their offer was. And it was a really cool moment to be able to, to have that like with my family um, who I wasn't seeing very often at that point. They were so far away. Um, and so we accepted that offer. It was a two book deal. Um, Ethan was a really smooth road from there, I think, because I was very conscious that um, like I needed to be putting my best foot forward with this book. I was not under any illusions about publishing being like an easy industry to be in or to break into. Um, I had done most of the hard work before it ever saw um, an editor's desk. So like it was smooth sailing and I was feeling really great about myself. Um, and then it came time to write my second book and it like I, it just trashed me. It was like, it was so, so difficult. And um, I at the time was in uh, like an online, like a Facebook um, writers group for other debut authors who had their first books coming out the same year. And it was quite a common experience that we were all struggling with these second books. And I think for me, at least, like I had put everything that was, that I felt like was central to my identity in the Ethan I was before. Um, and I'd taken my time with it and I had, there was no pressure, there was no clock on it. Um, and then I just had to come up with something from scratch. And the first attempt that I made was terrible. <laughs> like it was really bad. Um, and I sent it to my editor and she said, this is really bad. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't, she didn't say that. Um, but they, but they turned, you know, they turned the book down. Um, and I'm not sure that I've ever experienced a blow like that um, academically or professionally, like, I have always been or wanted to be an overachiever. Like I don't miss deadlines and, you know, I want to be the, I want to be the teacher's pet. Um, and I just couldn't do this. I could not, I could not find my way to this story. Um, and so I struggled with it for a good two years. Um, and in that time we moved back to the States, we were in Raleigh um, and I was really doubting you know, I thought I was a one hit wonder. Um, I wrote three, sorry, three. I wrote two books that I thought were going to be 
my book two that were both turned down before I started writing August Isle, um, which is about a girl who has no self-confidence, um, who is an anxious mess. And that is who I was at that point. That was, that was where I was in my journey. Um, and maybe because of that, that book felt authentic in a way that the previous two that I tried to write just didn't. Um, and so I turned that into my editor and like, kept everything crossed and clenched for like, you know, the two months or whatever that it took her to read it. And she loved it. And it was like the biggest relief of my life. Um, and, uh, and then after that, somehow, I think just my creative well had been filled and I got back some of that confidence. And then I was able to, um, yeah, I was able to keep keep trucking and and work on these other these other lovely books so obviously you you've got the hang of it now uh or maybe the mending summer is the end of it and you're not gonna write anymore. <laughs> never again <laughs> but it's, it seems like you, you you do have the the hang of the process so what's your what's your um what does your workday look like now and how do you approach a new book to make sure you're not paralyzed uh, the way you might have been through part of the second one? Yeah. First of all, hi, Kitty. <laughs> Esteemed audience will be happy to see Mabel. She has sat out for a couple of episodes and they've been wondering what happened to her. Nope, never fear, esteemed audience. She's back. Oh, well, I'm so glad that she decided to make a cameo for us. She's been sleeping with my son the last couple of episodes, so she <laughs> wasn't out here to be available. That's like every kid's dream. I would have loved if one of our pets would have slept with me as a kid, but probably they didn't because they knew I would be, like, squeezing them the whole night. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah, so daily routine there is none. <laughs> it is utter chaos all the time. Um, I'm sure I, having a child has made that easier. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking about your process. You know what? Let's do this. Uh, let's talk pre-baby. What does your workday look like? And then post-baby. So pre-baby, pre you've written the second novel, overcome that incredible hurdle. Uh, and then uh, here we go. You've got a process down right before the pandemic and the pandemic baby that I assume throws some wrenches and things. Uh, what does it look like beforehand? So beforehand, so I, I split my time. I do half time with um, editing with the book Packager, um, which I love. It's really, really, it's just a totally different way of expressing creativity and experimenting with stories. Um, and super fun and collaborative. Um, and then the other half uh, is my writing time. So I definitely find that my brain works best in the morning. Um, so if any of this is unintelligible, then I plead the fact that it is nighttime and my brain is word soup. Um, so usually I, I try to get as much writing done as early as possible. Um, like starting over breakfast. Um, and I find that I can usually write for three-ish hours at a time before I start to get really like my brain just starts to wander and I can't muster that that kind of really intense concentration that you need to draft or to edit. Um, and then I usually spend the afternoons doing something that allows me to ruminate on 
the what I've been writing and what I'm going to be writing the next day or the next week. Um, so oftentimes that's like something with my hands, like baking or um, walking my dogs or working in the garden, um, something that doesn't require a lot of brain work, but is like it's like very fertile ground for those kind of ideas to um, to soak into your brain a little bit. Like sometimes when you think too hard about something, it just eludes you and you need to like do something else and let your mind wander for a while and, and it'll come back to you. Um, so that's kind of how my writing days are structured. Um, before baby, <laughs> after baby, <laughs> those lovely afternoons of baking cookies and working, whittling away the hours in my garden, um, they have gone. Um, they are dead, RIP. So, uh, you know, when things shut down, we didn't have, you know, my parents are local, but they didn't want to see us because we didn't, you know, we didn't want to risk giving COVID to them. They didn't want to risk giving it to Luca, the baby. Um, so there were a few months where it was just me and my husband and he was working insane hours. Um, so it was basically just me, um, which was not the image that I had in my mind uh, of what our plan, our childcare plan was going to be. Um, and then fortunately in the summer when he was about five months old, we were able to find a like amazing nanny, Chloe, if you ever watch this, I'm like totally always indebted to you forever. Um, uh, who would stay with Luca, uh, halftime so that I could start writing, um, uh, and, and working on both the mending summer and the, the book that I'm writing now. Um, and so my routine now is whenever there's a moment that somebody else had Luca, <laughs> I do as much as I can as quickly as I possibly can. Um, and you just have to, your routine is your baby's routine and you can't control your baby's routine past a certain extent. So, you know, daycare closes, I don't get any writing done. Um, I'm sure that there are writers out there who can like write during nap time or, you know, for 20 minutes while their baby plays in their crib. My baby doesn't play in his crib for 20 minutes and I can't, you know, nap time is for cleaning the house and cooking the meals. So I just write whenever I have the chance, basically. Um, and um, uh, well, lots of uh, follow up questions uh, about that one. Um, uh, well, I guess there is no way to answer how the baby changes your your pandemic experience. Part of me thinks that might almost be the ideal time to have a young child because you're you're gonna be mostly cut off from the yeah. rest of the world for a solid year. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, no, it's true. I think in it, like having a baby is a very insular time. It's like a time that you are turning inward and nesting anyway. Um, and so there were ways that it like felt like, you know, why not? Like, this is a good time. Like, we don't have to make excuses not to fly to people's weddings. Great. Um, and my husband was working from home. And so even though he was really busy, there was still another adult in the house. And that really helped to keep me sane. Um, and it was just nice to have, like, we had something to wake up for and feel hopeful about because we had to. Um, 
you know, when, when he woke up in the morning, we had to be there with a smile on and like ready to help him have another great day in this world that was really new to him. Um, so it kept a lot of the fear and, and depression and anxiety at bay, having this like beautiful, magical little being to focus on. And then, of course, you launched a book uh, this time uh, last year. Uh, you were uh, you, so you were launching a, a, a book, uh, "How to Disappear Completely," uh, in May of 2020, uh, versus now May of 2021, which, as esteemed audience is listening to this, has already happened. So the, the launch was a huge success. Um, how? What? What are the biggest differences for you between those those two launches? Uh, May was just a total scramble and like just nobody knew what was going on. Um, and uh, so I, I put together a launch with um, two other authors and that was like, like we didn't, none of us wanted to do it alone because we didn't know how to do a virtual launch. Um, so we did that and it was, it was great. Um, uh, and then it just kind of like, Honestly, it felt like it, how to disappear completely kind of disappeared um, because there were no bookshops for it to be, you know, like usually when you launch a book, people send you lovely pictures of your book out in the wild, um, you know, sitting on the shelves in the bookstores and um, being like, you know, the bookseller's pick or whatever it is. Um, and that, you know, that obviously wasn't an option um for this book and and so it was a little disheartening as i think it has been for many authors who have had books come out at this time um i'm very excited that the mending summer will probably have more physical outlets to be in and and may find more readers that way um i'm totally burned out on the zoom events uh so instead of having a like traditional launch party via Zoom um, and forcing all of my family and friends to come so that I don't feel nervous that nobody's going to show up. Uh, I'm doing a virtual school tour um, launch party. And so I have um, about 25 schools that I'm going to visit for half an hour each um, and do a little celebration and talk about the book and do a little bit of a reading. So it's going to be like 25 mini launches um, with kids, which is, which is ideal. Like usually at my launches, there are some kids, but a lot of it is like adults, um, my parents and their friends and community members and people associated with the bookshop. And so I'm excited to be celebrating this one, like just with kids and educators who are really at the heart of, you know, who I'm writing for. Just so on. And so you're doing these visits and you will continue. I, I saw on your website that you're going to do free visits uh, to at least the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, so any educators listening, wondering, oh, my gosh, how am I going to fill up my curriculum? Good news. It's <laughs> got you covered. Uh, so let them know what they can look forward to. You're going to come, you're going to do a, a reading and then you're going to do a Q&A. What does a successful virtual visit look like for you? Yeah, so I, I try to spend most of the time on the Q&A. Like I'll talk a little bit at first about myself and like make some jokes so that the kids loosen up and they don't have to feel like afraid to talk. Um, it's important to remember that authors are just like 
normal, weird people. Um, and then uh, most of the time is spent letting the kids ask questions because that is always the most interesting part of a visit for me. And also like, I want every kid to have a chance to be able to interface with me um, so that they feel like they have made a direct connection with an author. Um, and, you know, kids just ask like the loveliest, most bonkers questions. And so that's always like the highlight of my day when I have a visit. Um, it's just like looking forward to what questions are going to get thrown my way. Um, and then I'll do a little reading so that kids who might be interested um, in the book that I'm bringing out, The Mending Summer in this case, um, and kids who might really need that book um, get to hear a little little taste of it. So offhand, can you think of one or two of the questions you've gotten from actual child readers? Uh, I knew you were going to ask that. In the back of my head, I was like, what, what are they? So I think the funniest one I've ever gotten was, um, you know, I did my whole spiel and uh, had answered a bunch of questions. And there was this kid who was like right in the back of the, the auditorium. It was like maybe 100, 150 kids. And he like very slowly raised his hand and I called on him and I could kind of see the teachers like, like tensing up. And I was like, okay, this, one, this is gonna be good. And he like so sweetly said, did you write all of the Harry Potter books or just some of them? <laughs> and I was like, man, this kid is about to be so disappointed. <laughs> say all and move on <laughs> all of them hobbit that was me yeah all of them i wrote all of them finish up charlie the chocolate factory straight to harry potter yeah, yeah. <laughs> gotta keep busy of course uh save time to finish up watership down absolutely makes sense yeah. um so um Oh, I wanted to make sure I asked you, because um, your your name is Alice Standing, and yet it's Allie Standing on the cover of all of the books. So how did that come to be? Yes. So um, my given name is Alice, um, which I actually really love now. But as a kid, it felt like so old-fashioned. Um, and all the kids called me Alice in Wonderland, which like now I would take as a total compliment. But at the time, it was just like, I'm not, you know, I wanted to be my own person. I didn't want to be like a Disney character. Um, and so when I moved into the sixth grade, I thought I needed to have a more grown up name. And so I changed it to Allie. And that is still who I am today. Uh, and OK, well, let's talk. Uh, let's talk the Mending Summer. Uh, as promised, I will not summarize your book, although I do have lots of questions about it. What does esteemed audience need to know as they're putting a copy of the Mending Summer into their virtual cart right now, adding it to their library checkout list? Yeah, so this is the Mending Summer. Um, I love the beautiful cover, which was done by Sarah J. Coleman. Um, it is about a 12 year old girl named Georgia. Um, who is um, living in a family that is, has been impacted by alcoholism. So her father is an alcoholic um, and his addiction has gotten worse in the time leading up to the beginning of the novel. 
And so George's mother decides um, that it would be best to send her away for the summer, for the weekdays, um, to get her out of the house so that she isn't around um, to kind of see her father uh, giving into this disease. Um, and so Georgia is sent off to stay with her great aunt Marigold, um, who is quite a prickly uh, figure, kind of solemn figure uh, that Georgia doesn't know very well. It's just an extended family member who she's met a few times. Um, and so she's she's really anxious about it at first, but um, the house is mysterious and it's out in the country and she loves nature. Um, so she starts to relax into this new setting. Um, and as she's exploring the woods behind the house, she uh, discovers a lake um, and meets a friend uh, named Angela at the lake. And together uh, they discover that this lake uh, seems to have a magical ability to grant wishes. Um, and so, of course, George's first instinct is, um, I, I can use this this magic to fix my father um, and to, you know, to to bring him back to the person he was um, before the alcoholism took over. Um, but the lake does not work that way. Um, there are rules and boundaries to its magic that uh, she and Angela explore together over the summer um, as she gets to know her Aunt Marigold. Um, and when she's going home on the weekends, things are still continuing to get worse um, with her dad. And as they do, um, things at the lake start to change too. Um, there's a new character who shows up, a boy named Blake, um, who seems to want to take the magic in a darker direction. Um, and so this, this um, strand of magic that Georgia has discovered and what's happening in her home life um, come together and kind of collide in a way that leaves her with a choice for how she wants to move forward with her life and with her relationship with her father. So, um, lots to, to unpack with this book. Let's start with who is the ideal reader for this story? I think that this book, I mean, I'm the ideal reader for this story. Um, well, good news, you read it. So that's yeah. <laughs> Job done. Um, this is a story that I needed when I was growing up. My father was an alcoholic. Um, and his worst years were um, when I was slightly older than Georgia. But even as a teenager who had access to more information than Georgia does, it was a very isolating and um, shameful experience for me. Um, and, and I wish that I had had this book um, or a book like it um, to help me feel less alone and to help give me hope and, and kind of like a roadmap for how to navigate this very treacherous time in my life. Um, and so that's who I really wrote the book for is those children who are impacted by alcoholism or other types of addiction. Um, and really any kid who is um, at a point in their life where they've gone through a trauma and they're trying to figure out, am I gonna deal with this in a way that's going to allow me to move forward positively in my life and heal, or am I going to deal with it in a way that is going to ultimately be self-destructive? Because I think those are the two um, competing instincts that we have when we are going through a trauma or we feel betrayed by somebody that we love. 
Of course, even once that choice has been made, I, I assume that this is going to continue to be an issue uh, for Georgia and for her father in some sense forever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I obviously can't say too much about the ending, um, but I tried to construct the ending in a way that would um, that would do that dynamic justice. You know, you can't wrap addiction up in a happy ending and a neat bow um, and have it be an authentic story because it is a lifelong affliction. Um, and even in cases like um, my family's case where we were fortunate enough that my dad was able to recover from his alcoholism, you know, that's still a part of our family history and it still, it, it echoes, it has ripple effects. And um, for my dad, that's always going to be, you know, he's always going to be an alcoholic. This is, you know, this is a little bit uh, heavy stuff for uh, for a middle grade novel. This is not chocolate factory uh, territory. So <laughs> what, uh, what is a responsible way to discuss alcoholism in a middle grade novel that doesn't undercut the seriousness of it mm -hmm. uh, without being so dark and, and, and covering some of the worst aspects that maybe would be inappropriate for the age level? Yeah. Well, first of all, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is super dark. <laughs> I don't know if you remember what happened to all those kids, um, but I think it's way nope. dark. Uh, my, my conversation with Kyle Lukoff, he told me why I should stop using Roald Dahl as an example and made a pretty definitive case for it. I, I just can't help myself. I think it's because we were talking about England earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm, you know, he was a big part of my childhood reading. Um, so I think all of my books have dealt with, like you said, like a, a heady issue, um, something that traditionally might have been excluded from the children's literature canon um, for being too dark for children to handle, which is just a really bad logic um, because we know that there are millions of children who are living in households where somebody is is wrestling with an addiction. And so if we say, oh, we can't, you know, we can't expose the children to this kind of issue, you know, you're talking about a certain type of child when you make a statement like that. And that's a child that is fortunate enough not to have this as part of their life experience. But um, kids do go through dark things and they need books that are about those dark things. Um, and we need to, you know, to acknowledge the realities that they're living in. So, um, so I think it's really important to have books about a huge array of life experiences. But as you say, there does need to be room for hope and for levity. Um, and the way that I tend to try to accomplish that in my books is to make sure that there is a very strong dose of uh, adventure um, and mystery that is uh, somewhat independent of whatever kind of um, issue related uh, journey the character is on um, so that readers both who are struggling with the same thing as the main character but also you know just any reader who picks up the book um, isn't going to be like totally overwhelmed by darkness, but they're going to see that like, you know, as hard as that part of my life was when um, my dad and 
um, and also my brother were really subsumed by their addictions. I had joy, like I had inside jokes with my friends and I have, you know, really great memories from that time too. And so it's important to get the whole picture. Um, uh, and so that, so that kids do have that sense of like hope and knowing that, um, that it's okay to feel joy, even when you're going through something really hard. How about Magic Island? Do you know where such an island is? And can we go there and make wishes? I wish. Um, yeah, this is my first. How to Disappear Completely has some um, magical realism elements in it, but this was my um, first attempt at really like full out magical realism. Um, and it was really hard. <laughs> like, I don't recommend it to um, writers who are just starting out. <laughs> Or, you know, I don't know, maybe it's easy for some people. It was difficult for me. Um, but I found the idea of it really compelling because wishing, there's a difference between hope and wishing. And I think you always want to have hope, but you don't want to get stuck on wishing. You know, wishing is, is kind of like quicksand. Um, like if you don't move past the wishing stage to the acting stage, um, nothing changes for you. Um, and so that is what I'm trying to get at with this magical lake that seems like so alluring and so seductive and so wonderful and magical, but is also in some ways a trap that Georgia has to be very, very careful with. So in the, the Mending Summer, something I noticed uh, that just struck me a little bit curious is that you're very specific about food, particularly the food that uh, Aunt Marigold is cooking. Uh, so I, I feel like we, we always know what she's cooking. Which I, I noticed myself hungrier than usual as I was reading the Mending Summer. Is that uh, something specific for this story or is that something that follows you through all of your writing? So... Um... Food is actually a subject that is very of, of a lot of interest to um, scholars of children's literature, uh, the way that it is used um, in stories for children. Um, and to me, I think those descriptions of food is a, a form of comfort, of giving comfort to the reader. So to get back to your last question about, you know, balancing the darkness um, with, you know, lighter strokes um that is one way of doing it like uh, it sounds silly but when we read a description of a meal that is hot and prepared with love and home cooking like it does make us relax a little bit and connect to you know the places in our memories and experiences where we've had meals like that and we just kind of have that like sigh of like oh yeah i i know that meal i love that meal so yes, it's intentional. Um, and uh, I do think that more people have commented on it in the Mending Summer uh, than my other books, but maybe that's because I was pregnant when I wrote this book. <laughs> and so I was, like, my instincts around food were like very finely honed. It was, I thought about it a lot. <laughs> that 100% makes sense. That I, I, I feel that sentiment, yes. <laughs> um, and then I know that, Aunt Marigold, when we first meet her, is reading As I Lay Dying. Um, and I thought, well, Aunt Marigold could be reading any book. 
Uh, so anytime a, a book title is mentioned specifically for adults, I wonder, because presumably your your younger readers might not yet have experienced the joy of Faulkner. Um, why why that book of all the books that Anne Marigold could be reading? Yeah, I wish that there was like a really deep answer to this question, but I am not a Faulkner fan. <laughs> it just, um, it stood out to me as a book that would resonate with Aunt Marigold because it is about the hardship of being in a family and the sacrifices that you that you make. Um, and that's something that is a defining experience for her. But um, it's definitely not an endorsement for readers of this age group to go out and get their hands on all the Faulkner that they can. Although, you know, if that's their thing, great. I think I mentioned O. Henry also in this book. Um, and one or the other, uh, my editor queried and said, like, do we, like, kids aren't really going to know this. Should we leave this in? And, uh, and then my other editor who works on my book said, like, yeah, I think it's okay. Like, let's leave it in. If kids don't know it, they don't know it. Maybe they look it up. So, yeah. Fair enough. Uh, we start with a very specific idea, uh, and it turns out to be the, the tagline uh, as well, which I assume happened after the fact, but some summers are just meant to break your heart. And that was so specific, I wondered, had you encountered that phrase, were you at a, at a summer camp and someone had broken your heart, like the, the two girls, at the, the, the two counselors at the start of the story at camp, or... Uh, where did this idea of summers breaking hearts come from? And was there a summer that broke yours? That was one of those lines that just comes to you as a gift from the writing gods. It just kind of fell into my head one day. And God help me, I hope I didn't plagiarize it by accident. <laughs> um, I really don't think I did. Um, it just came to me. And when it did, I thought, God, that is so true. Like summers when you're young are this time, like they're time for experimenting and uh, challenging yourself and putting yourself in new settings and meeting new people. Um, and then summer comes to an end. Uh, and oftentimes so do the relationships that you formed, you know, the friendships or romantic relationships. Um, you know, sometimes they're really summer specific. And you can feel like you've lived a whole lifetime in one summer. Um, and so this line came to me and I thought it, I just thought it would make the, a perfect first line to the book. I love first, I love first lines to books. They're really important to me. So um, I really try my best to find something that's super compelling. And I thought that fit the bill. You tend to start a book without that perfect line already in place, or does the book not go anywhere until you've got that line? I tinker with the line sometimes, but I usually need that line. It's almost like a sign to me that like this book is meant to be written. It needs to be written. If I can think of like a great first line to pull readers into the story, I also pull myself into the story with that line. And you're uh, you're a pantser, right? I know everybody's on the spectrum, but you're more toward the pantsing side than the plotting side. On the spectrum, is that right? No, I think over time I've become more and more of a plotter. Um, but I don't 
I'm not like a person that has like all the post-it notes that are like color coded. And I've tried that before or like the spreadsheets, like people have amazing ways that they organize their brains. Um, I'm like a stewer. Like I stew on my story idea and I plot the beats out, the major beats out in my head before I start writing. Um, and usually there are like big gaps when I start writing the first chapter, but I know where the story is going and I know a few stops along the way. Um, and I think I need that for myself before I start a story um, as like some reassurance that it's going somewhere, you know. Did you I write think, that uh, down formally or is it all just in your head the whole time you're going? It's in my head or it's like on the notes app on my phone. Actually, I kept everything in my head until I had Luca. And then like, like mom brain is real. Like it is like scientific. Like there's a term for it called matrilescence that is like this, the um, transition that your brain goes through when you become pregnant and when you have a baby. And it's like, like the stuff that goes on in your brain, like your brain changes as much as it does during puberty, but like in the span of like nine months to a year. Um, and so uh, after I had Luca, I, I couldn't, I couldn't hold on to my thoughts anymore. And it was really like disorienting. Um, and so I started having to like pull my notes app out on my phone every time I had an idea and like like typing like frantically before it slipped away from me again. So there you go. That's my that's my trick, kids. If you want to become a writer, get an iPhone and get the notes app. <laughs> <laughs> Guaranteed success. Yeah. <laughs> When I became a parent, I noticed not immediately, but eventually my, I had to pull myself back from writing more sympathy for the uh, parent characters than I had before. <laughs> so, oh, I, I definitely get their point more now. And this this character that would have struck me as adventurous before is now a monster. Why would you make your parents worry? Go home. <laughs> have you found that uh, impacting your writing at all? I don't think so, but my mom is... Um... She has been constantly on my back ever since I published the Ethan I was before about how the moms, my mom, they're always mean or they're absent or they're not good moms, which I disagree with. Like, I think all the moms in my stories are solid, but they also have a lot of their own things going on, you know, besides what's going on with their, like, I think I've always written sympathetic uh, parent characters that are really multidimensional and don't just exist as like furniture in the story. Um, but uh, the book that I'm working on now, <laughs> the mother in it is definitely like the best mom in the traditional sense of any of the moms. And she's also pregnant. And so my mom gave me a really hard time about that. Like, you never wrote a, a nice mom like me and then you skip straight to writing yourself as a mom. Like. <laughs> This young pregnant lady, which I don't think is what I was doing. Uh, just tell her that uh, because you had such a perfect mom in real life, you want to experience more nuanced moms in your fiction. Exactly. That's right. That's a good one. I'm going to use that. <laughs> Since our life is so conflict-free, I have to create interesting things for our characters, of course. 
like I always tell them, like, if you guys had just been like slightly worse parents, like I could have been a great stand-up comedian, you know, but you have to have like lots of terrible things happen to you in your childhood for that. And we we were we, we just didn't quite hit that threshold. You paid too much attention to me, you hugged me every day. Yeah. <laughs> what am I supposed to work with? <laughs> Uh, so what's uh, what's next for you? What are you working on? What can you tell us about this coming? So um, the book that I'm working on now will be out next May, hopefully, if the publishing gods are, um, are with me. Uh, it's called Yonder, um, and it takes place in uh, World War II in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. And um, I'm like, so, I'm so excited for this book. Like I'm excited for all my books and I love all my books, but this feels to me like the first book since Ethan that feels like, oh my gosh, this is my soul in a book. Um, and uh, it is about a boy named Danny um, who is a lonely kind of misfit kid uh, in his small mountain town. Um, and he has uh, this one older friend named Jack um, who's kind of like, best friend slash mentor to him is like this really cool older kid that for some reason has a connection with Danny uh, that he really clings to. Um, and at the beginning of the book, uh, Jack goes missing and uh, Danny feels like he has to step into the investigator role uh, to figure out what's happened to his friend. Um, Jack is from a very troubled, abusive household. Um, and so Danny is worried that you know, he might have met with foul play at the hands of his father um, and chases down, you know, different ideas about where uh, Jack could have gone. And as he gets deeper and deeper into the mystery of where Jack has gone and also who he was and why people didn't see him for who he was, but who they wanted him to be, um, he starts to kind of get into other mysteries about um, what we're really trying to accomplish in this war and what is happening in this war in overseas um, that makes it different and um, more existential than the wars that have come before it. And how does that connect to the injustices that uh, exist in, in his own small town? Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about Yonder. And there's also magical birds magical jewel birds so it's really everything you're prominently in yonder sorry these are the magical jewel birds are are, are featured prominently in yonder they are yes they're actually a big part of the uh the mystery of the book and how it gets solved and they're they're literal literally magical or well metaphorically but they they, they are they, they they possess some sort of magical capability I think I can't say that without giving away too much. Fair enough. I'm just wondering if this is, um, I don't know if uh, if it's fair to say that like my, my work has got some familiar touchstones that like, oh, that has to be one yeah. of my books because they're, those are zombies. Do you find that you're looking for something magical and some sort of, uh, even what I don't call them zombies. I, I said alligator people, trust me, esteemed audience, they, they were zombies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but do you find that you're looking for like an issue and then some sort of magic to keep it grounded in middle grade? Do you have some, what, what, what 
what may, I don't know if there's a good way to answer this question, so maybe we'll cut it. I don't know. Uh, but do you find that there's something that attracts you to a particular story that, yes, that's an alley story. I have to tell that one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it goes back to that game that my mom and I used to play of finding the right mix of things that you want to tell a story about but don't seem related and finding a way to connect them. Um, so the jewel birds uh, was actually an idea that I had in that first attempt at the second book that never saw the light of day because it was terrible. Um, that book was called Jewel Bird. Um, and that was an image that has been in my head ever since then that I hadn't known how to incorporate into a book. Um, and it has finally found its place. Um, setting is obviously really important and is kind of consistent throughout my books. They all take place in small southern towns, which is, uh, you know, the setting that I'm most familiar with, having grown up in one. Um, there is always a mysterious older shut-in character in my books, and I, like, cannot get away from them. Like, every time I start a book, I'm like, I can't have another, like, strange old lady in this book and then I end up with another strange old lady and I like love her so much and I can't take her out. Um, there's always an animal which I guess is the jewel bird but there's also a dog in this book um, and yeah there's also there's always there's always something that my main character is grappling with that has been an important thing that I have grappled with also. Look at this. We've come full circle right back to where we started. A smart podcaster would end here, but esteemed audience knows I cannot <laughs> ask. Uh, Ali Standing, uh, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? I've never seen a flying saucer. Have I seen a ghost? I've not seen a ghost, but I can tell you my creepy dollhouse story. Yes, after I apologize for saying standing instead of standish. What's the creepy <laughs> That's <story>? okay. <laughs> Um, it's kind of an odd last name. Um, you're not the first. Um, so my grandmother made me this dollhouse when I was a kid. Um, I had just had surgery uh, on my Achilles tendons. I was in third grade and I had like casts that were full, like full leg casts up to my thighs. So couldn't, couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair um, for about six weeks and obviously like, you know, couldn't go outside and play or anything. So my grandmother made me this dollhouse very sweet of her, very out of character of her. Um, it was beautiful, like a blue Queen Anne house. Um, and it had this set of like the creepiest dolls you've ever seen. There was a mom, a dad, a boy, a girl, a baby, and a grandma. Um, and like, I liked it, it was fine. Uh, didn't really have super strong feelings about it either way. And then um, a few months after I had it, I came into the playroom where it was kept and uh, the dolls had all been arranged in positions uh, which a, a real human would not be able to survive. Um, so like the grandmother's like clinging, well no, the, the mom is like clinging to the edge of the roof and I won't, I won't, I won't say like all the descriptions because they were, it was like really scary um but the grandmother would always be just like sitting in her rocking chair like with this little smile on her face um so this happened like four or five times 
And I was positive that it was my older brother who like tortured me and like, this is totally up his alley. Um, and my parents like were like, it's definitely him. Um, and they like yelled at him and were like, what, like, don't do this. Like, this is like, this is awful. Stop. Uh, and he denied it and was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So anyways, uh, then summer comes and my brother goes to summer camp and the day after he leaves, I go into the playroom and the dolls had moved again, uh, into more sinister endangered positions. Um, and I wrapped them all up in a rubber band and I threw them into the bottom of a blanket chest that we had in that playroom that nobody ever like opened. And I locked the chest and I never played with the dollhouse again. When's that book coming? I actually, uh, I told the story for, um, the podcast Snap Judgment, they do a series called Spooked at Halloween. And I there's an episode where I tell that story in more detail. Um, so, I mean, if it wasn't your brother, that leaves what your parents, I guess, would be the only other option other than the dolls were moving on their own or being moved by some demonic presence uh, that was contained to a dollhouse, I suppose. I don't know which is more scary, if a parent was intentionally doing that. Also, <laughs> the chance that it was my alter identity. Um, I had this theory that they actually, I think they cut it out of the Snap Judgment episode. But my grandmother was a very, she raised four girls. Um, her husband was an alcoholic. They had a very bitter divorce. She was very, she had a lot of angry feelings at the end of her life and she was very lonely and her house, she still lived where my mom grew up um, until she died. And that house was a very dark and haunted place. Um, and there's just always been some connection there for me to the fact that, you know, this, this house that she had built for me was this like beautiful idyllic house and yet it was haunted by these family members that just seemed to like want to die all the time. Um, but never the grandmother. Like the grandmother was always the one who was sitting there in the middle of the house. Like she was the one who had done this to all the other family members. So anyhow, my grandmother's passed away now. And I think she would get like a total kick out of me telling this story because she loved, she loved things like this. So so I don't know. We'll see. I still have the house up in my parents' attic. So we'll bust it out one of these days for Luca and uh, definitely don't still have those dolls. So we'll get him some other dolls and we'll see what happens. Put it on a 24-hour webcam. Uh, keep it streaming at a site where people can, can pay to log in and see what those dolls are going to get up to. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a great idea. That's the next way I'll make my mil I'll make my next million dollars that way. <laughs> at least. <laughs> uh, and then uh, my my last question, although this is this has just been lovely. Um, I so appreciate you you making time and being such an absolutely fantastic guest this evening. 
Uh, but my last question is always some variation. Uh, if you could go back toward the start of your career or any time in your career, it would have been useful to you and give yourself some advice that would make a significant difference and might make a big difference for esteemed audience listening uh, with their writing career, would you go back and tell yourself? I would have to go back to the depths of my sorrow trying to write my second book um, because that that really was a low point in my career. Um, and I think I would tell myself, first of all, that my identity is not the same as my career. Um, you know, just because my writing was not going well at that particular time was not a reflection on my worth as a person, um, which I think is an important thing for people in all career paths to remember. Um, and I would just tell myself to show myself more grace, um, show myself more patience um, and understanding rather than having those voices. Well, you know, you're always going to have the voices that say, ha ha, I told you so. You were a one-hit wonder. You're not a real author. You're never going to write a book again. I don't think you can get rid of those voices. They're there. Um, but it's like a crazy dollhouse family. And that's one of the family members. And, you know, that's like my older brother. And then there has to be a little sister that says, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing something else right now. I'm going to get back to writing in a little while. And so I would shift the um, the weight that I give the voices in my head over to the voices that say, you're in a tough spot right now. Writing is hard. Being created is hard. It's really draining. It's not always something that you can control. Keep working at it, but don't beat yourself up about it. And the story that is is that you're meant to tell is going to come to you one way or another. You're going to find it. It's just a matter of when. Uh, where uh, can people find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Yep. Um, I am at AllieStandish.com. Uh, can't say that my website is always the most updated, but there is a contact form there. Um, that comes directly to my email. So I see everything that comes in and I respond to everything that comes in, although not always right away. Um, so have patience with me just as I will try to have patience with myself. Um, and I'm on Twitter sporadically um, at Allie Standish also. And that's it. And as always, esteemed audience, head to middlegradeninja.com where you can find interviews with all the greatest folks. Uh, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Heck, download your free copy of the Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent. Uh, and as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.